the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Special guest today, he is Pastor Chip Ingram, the author of uh, quite a number of best-selling books, speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast Living on the Edge, and senior pastor at Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos. And Chip, just before the break, you were talking about your experience at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp and uh, observing those relationships, true relationships on the horizontal, and by the time you had an opportunity to first crack open the Bible and go to that Romans 12 passage, that must have not just been an eye-opener for you, but a mind-blower in realizing that your perception of Christianity was basically on religion, religiosity, and all of a sudden now God is opening up this whole new world to you that it's not about religion, it's about relationship, you really hit it. I, I mean, I I remember hearing people say Jesus' name like he was a real person and like you could know him. And and then, you know, a guy would teach every morning, but, you know, just like a half hour, and he, he read a paragraph, and then he explained it, but like it made sense. And then people were talking about having a personal relationship with God. I had never heard that phrase before, and I had no idea that a spiritual life demands a spiritual birth. But on the last night of that camp, um, I remember hearing um, Jesus speak, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, um, I'll come into him and live with him and he with me. And, and uh, I mean, my prayer wasn't very theological, but whatever it means for you to come into my life, I want you to. And I, I, this is new to me, but I, I actually trust that you died on the cross and you paid for my sin and rose from the dead. And... So I don't know all that it means to follow you, but with all my heart, as much as I know, I'm, I'm going to follow you. And that was uh, when I trusted Christ as my Savior and, and then had a pretty rocky first couple years uh, in terms of learning to grow in Christ. I felt like I went three steps forward and two steps backward and, and then met a, uh, a bricklayer that was trained by the Navigators my first week at college, and he took me under his wing, and actually for the next three years was just a mentor and friend, and you know, taught me how to have a relationship with God. It was really powerful. Your, your early passion, the early draw was basketball, as you've articulated. Um, when did the call come about? When did you start to feel that God was pulling you in a, in a very different direction? Well, I was I really struggled with uh, what to major in, and every time I grew a little bit, I, you know, when I went to college, I was going to be a lawyer because, you know, I sort of my mother said, "You got the gift of the gab, kid," and and I liked to argue, and I did well in debating, and and so I wanted to be a lawyer, have expensive suits, a pretty wife, three kids, an Irish setter, a luxury car, and a station wagon, live in the suburbs, and um, and I wanted to make a lot of money, and then. You know, so I get there, and after the first year, I'm thinking, "Wow, that that's not a very Christ-like agenda." Not not nothing wrong with being a lawyer, but all my motives had nothing to do with God. And so, 
you know, on my second year, I think, well, I should, I should do something important with my life. So I'll be uh, the cure for cancer. I've always been a little bit idealistic, so I changed my major to to uh, to uh, to medicine and science. And so I did that for about a year and a half. And you know, I'm cutting open frogs and doing all this stuff. And my sister's a nurse, and I'm realizing, man, I don't, I don't like this at all. And so as life went on, I kept growing spiritual. I thought, well, you know, if I, you know, the cure from cancer, they'll 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 die and um and you know what about what about their interior life so i completely swung around and changed my major to education and psychology so, so i had to take all you know i think i ended up with like 160 hours in undergraduate took about 20 uh 25 a semester i mean i mean, I mean it was nutty i think 23 actually was the highest one because i kept changing majors and um and long story, I think God was, was preparing me, and then afterwards I teamed up with that bricklayer. I taught school. I coached basketball, did Bible studies. I never dreamed. If there was a 1,000 jobs, dream 1,001 would be a pastor. I just thought, no way. I'm not holy enough. I'm not smart enough. And besides, most of the pastors I've met, um, you know, I could just never see myself doing that. And so during the summers, I, I got recruited to play on a Christian basketball team, and we uh it was sort of an international version of athletes in action greg and so we played in two summers every single country in south america except uruguay played every one of their national teams selection teams a a game every day shared christ at halftime and god gave me the opportunity to lead scores and scores of people to christ and then i saw all these needs around the world and i just had no idea the world was like that and I went to grad school because I was going to be. I wanted to be a major college coach, and so I was in grad school. And we had a break, and an Australian team uh, that was associated with the organization. Uh, they they were great guys, but they weren't that good in basketball back then. So they needed a point guard and a big guy. And the point guard uh, pulled a hamstring, and they got a call and said, "Is there any way you could join this Australian team in the Orient and play throughout all the Orient for about six weeks?" and um, so I did in the middle of grad school, and again I saw the world. And um, so I, I was actually a school teacher and a coach, and we started a little Bible study off this campus, like we did in the in college days. And it went from three to like you know 100, 150 people. And everyone, people were starting to ask me, to, "Will you come and teach at our our youth group or at this camp?" I'm going, "Wait a second, I'm a school teacher. Why why would you be asking me?" And, uh, you know, uh, little by little by little, I didn't have, like, a lightning bolt. Uh, all I, I came to is, like, man, I'm getting up early to spend time with God, and I drive 40 minutes, and then I have an early morning basketball practice, then I coach, then I have an afternoon basketball practice, then I go back on the college campus to lead this ministry, and, you know, like, something dawned on me and the people around me. Uh, seems like you really get excited about going up on the campus and ministering to your kids. Have you... You ever thought of doing this full time? And I thought, you got to be kidding, <laughs> you know. And by the way, then the thought of I'm going to have to go back to school another three or four years. <laughs> you know, I've already been to college and grad school, and then it was just uh, honestly, it was like if you've ever been in a thick forest and been even maybe a little bit lost, and you see a little ray of light and you move toward it, and the more you move toward it, it gets lighter, lighter, lighter. Then you get the edge, and there's a meadow, and you're kind of out in the meadow, and you get you kind of big, deep relief. You go, oh wow, that's what it was like for me. It just, I kept just doing the little things God showed me, and pretty soon I was in this meadow, and it was like, okay, Chip, you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to coach my team. 
And, and you know, it wasn't even be a pastor. It was just, I just want you to coach my team. And I thought, well, okay. Well, then you need to get prepared. So off the seminary I went with a wife and two kids, and the rest is history. And the irony is, in a real sense, that passion for coaching really has never left, rather. It's just shifted. You know, it strikes me, the word tells us that God will give us the desires of our heart. Of course, he also wants our heart to be focused and our desire to be focused on him. How interesting that that sort of came back full circle. The only difference is you're, you're, you're coaching in a bigger game where the stakes are really real, aren't they? They are, and I think it's really interesting. I had, um, I'm had always a student of the game, and I, I had an amazing college coach uh, who, who actually later came to Christ, which was very, you know, I shared Christ my whole journey, and I, I don't want to get off on this too much, but it was so interesting. It was probably 15 years after I graduated from college, or maybe 20, and I got a phone call from a guy, and he said, hey, Chip, this is Tom Ackerman. I said, "Not, yeah, Coach Ackerman. I said, Coach, what are you doing? He goes, well, and the story, he uh, lost a grandson to leukemia and was really grappling with life. He said, I went to a Christian bookstore and I saw a book with your name on it. And he said, I shook my head. And he said, you know, he said, there can't be too many Chip Ingram. So I picked it up and wondered, and I looked at the little picture and I thought, that's that guy that played for me all those years ago. And um, he uh, read that book and came to know the Lord, and we've since kind of had some great conversation and time, but um, I, I really think uh, it, 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 a coach is someone who knows that, you know, coaches don't win games. I've, I've never coached a game where I made the winning shot or even scored a point, and I think as a pastor, when you read Ephesians 4, you realize our job is to equip God's people to do the work of service, and so, uh, you know, the, the heroes in our church are not any of the staff. It's the key lay people that he's using at Google and Facebook and, you know, Microsoft and on the website and at stay-at-home moms. But uh, they, they have networks. They are the people that are changing the world. And so that coaching mentality has really helped me be more of an equipper rather than, um, I think, you know, we as pastors, we always have a temptation to unconsciously become the spotlight. And I think Scripture's clear is we're the shepherds to help the sheep uh, do the work. I mean, who can talk to a doctor, me or another doctor? Who can help a, a woman who's been raped, me or a woman who's been raped? I mean, who can help an executive understand the pressures and demands and God's power, me or an executive? So, you know, our job is to help those people uh, just become all God wants them to be and so it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting team to coach. Pastor Chip Engram with us today, senior pastor at Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos. Information, by the way, on the web at venture.cc. That's venture.cc. Chip, of course, is also the speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast, Living on the Edge, the author of more than, oh, a dozen or more best-selling books. We're talking a bit about, uh, well, not just his work, his ministry, his life verse, but most importantly, um, th- this notion that God, at the end of the day, is really about drawing us in, compelling us into relationship. We'll pause on that point, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the program. Pastor Chip Ingram is with us today. Of course, you know him as speaker of Living on the Edge and senior pastor at Venture Christian Church down in Los Gatos, where he's served as senior pastor there since 2007. And it's interesting, you know, we're, we're talking about your background in sports and coaching. And I think as any co- coach would say, at the Olympic level or even a kid just playing, uh, you know, on the gridiron or playing basketball at, at high school, uh, you need to be committed and you need to be all in. If you're going to win, you have to be all in. Is that also true in your experience in terms of our relationship with God? Does God want us all in in our relationship with Him? You know, Craig, if I would say the one singular thing, and I have thousands and thousands of experiences and emails and letters uh, to um, kind of back up. This isn't just anecdotal or preach-speak. When I've taught Romans 12, verse 1 says, I urge you, therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the word offer there is a, is a point in time. And it's the same picture of like in the Old Testament when someone would bring a, a bull or a, or a goat. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, it is a picture of surrender. And it's, it's, it's a surrender that says all that I am and all that I have is yours. It's I forgive the gambling analogy, but it's the best picture. If if you've ever watched Texas Hold'em, is someone takes the chips and pushes them all to the center and says, "I'm all in," and that's when the action really starts because you know they're going to start dealing some cards, and it's either going to be really bad or really wonderful. And God is waiting. I, I think what I can tell you is. I've met people who've been Christian five years, 25 years, 30 years, people that are stuck. They hear Romans 12.1 and realize, on a certain day, at a certain time, I push all the chips, my future, my money, my hobbies, my work, my kids, my wife, my singleness, everything. It's all yours. I will do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever. I am completely surrendered. Now, it's scary. It's crazy scary, and it ought to be. But the, the reason you can do it is God is good. He's a son. He's a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. I think the great, great majority of Christians never experience the good will of God, the, bl- the full blessing of God, because, you know, if there's sort of, uh, it's like kind of hardening of the spiritual arteries, the blood, the grace can't flow through. And what I can tell you is when people make that real commitment, uh, I, w- I came to Christ in 1972, but it was um, 1974, two years later, at Penn State University, understanding the Lordship of Christ, mm. that I went all in. And I will tell you the power I experienced what happened in my life. And I have just, again, thousands of emails of people who said, you know, I haven't, I've been a Christian, I go to church, but I go to alcohol addiction, I got a sex addiction, you know, I've struggled with my anger, I've got this issue, this issue, then I went all in. And by the way, warning, most always it's harder and sometimes worse before it gets better. Because God begins to work and test and the enemy doesn't want to let you go. But those people who surrender, wow. They're the Christians who live like Christians. They're the Christians that have this joy that the Bible talks about. And, um, I mean, in Jesus' words, you know, he says, you cannot be, I mean, think of this, you cannot be my disciple, Luke chapter 9, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, 
and follow me. And what he was saying, you know, an instrument of death to your agenda, your way, your control. And then he tells him why. For what will it profit a man if you gain the whole world and yet profit it and, but lose your soul? And um, so anyway, I think it's just critical that surrender, though I put it this way, surrender is the channel. This is a positive way. Surrender is the channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. And if I have time, just one quick word picture. I have this picture of this like ocean or this huge lake, this beautiful lake in heaven, and there's this PVC pipe. I mean, it's grace, it's blessing, it's encouragement, it's this great self-identity, it's all the good that God wants to do, lavish. And this PVC pipe, it comes all the way down from heaven, it's invisible, but it's connected right in the back of my head. And God wants to pour this grace out and his blessing out and reveal himself and do amazing things in me and through me. But I have this little switch where I can turn it on or off. And, and I think, you know, you're connected. You're a believer. But I think a lot of believers open that valve just a tiny, tiny bit. And usually when they really, really... The reason people experience God so much, like when their kid's in ICU, guess what? They're surrendered. Oh, God, right? But you know what? You can open that, Romans 12, one moment, and say, God... Pour in that grace, I'll do whatever. And if God is really good, it's the smartest, wisest, best decision that anyone ever makes. And uh, we just confuse good with easy. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's easy, but um, I just have to, I think I've got to preach in here. Forgive <laughs> No, that's good. Do, do, do you think that on that point of surrender, that we don't surrender because we don't trust, and we don't trust because we don't know Him? Absolutely. Uh, you hit it. I, I you know what? I'm not going to repeat that. I can't say it better. That's exactly right. We're going to let listeners percolate on that thought. Hey, let's uh, let's switch gears for a moment. Um, every pastor knows this. You know this. We all know this. Um, we are working here in one of the most challenging mission fields anywhere on planet Earth. And ironically, a, a cross-section of what the mission field looks like. Name a culture, a people group, a language, and you'll find it here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, uh, people that feel a call to be a missionary can certainly get their experience under belt here in the San Francisco Bay Area because as they prepare for the mission field, they find that they are right here at home in the mission field. So helping pastors recharge their batteries, um, being able to preach from a, a full heart, uh, I think is critically important, isn't it? Because there are challenges that are faced here by preachers in the pulpit here that perhaps are not seen anywhere else, certainly in the United States. Uh, you're, you're actually really, really right. We had about 60% of our pastors came from the Bay Area, about 40% from all over the country. And, you know, we've all been to a lot of conferences. And so we, we, we did this one a little bit different where rather than just coming and hearing people talk, 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 talk. We really have built in some time. We've got some um, great breakout times. But, like, I, I get with a group of people and say, okay, how do you use preaching to make disciples? And it's a small enough group. We're, like, 30, 40 guys. We just really talk. Uh, what are your biggest challenges? And then I, I ask all the guys when they come, I don't want you to come speak and then go back in some room somewhere. Okay, we're here. These people should, you know, they... You know, as one guy wrote, he goes, it was so refreshing to hear people that, you know, you guys have a pretty significant platform that have all the same normal normal struggles in me. You know, how do you maintain balance at home? When and how do you prepare? You know, I mean, I can get great information about preaching on the Internet. What I can't get is relationships and connections. 
and um, and we have people of all kind of ethnic backgrounds. I mean, it's just. Um, in fact, you would be surprised. I think some of our services are probably at least half multicultural, whether Indian, Asian, Indonesian, um, Korean. Uh, we actually have to. Are you ready for this adventure? We have to translate our eleven o'clock service in Mandarin and Korean simultaneously. Isn't that great? <laughs> it is. It's, it's God. It's the hand of God. Hey, Pastor, it's been a delight visiting with you. As always, we appreciate both your time, your your passion for uh, the Word, your love for God that just oozes out of you. And hey, if you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area, you're looking for a church home, we certainly invite you to uh, check out the ministry. It, it is broad and deep and wide, as you will experience. You can begin that introduction by uh, checking out the website, VentureChristian.cc. Listen to a lot of Pastor Chip's uh, sermons and teachings, of course, part of the radio ministry as well, at Living on the Edge and some great resources there, especially if you want to dive deeper as we began the conversation today into what it means to be a Romans 12 Christian. Check it out again on the web at venture.cc. Well, Pastor Chip Ingram, as always, a real privilege to get a chance to uh, spend some time in fellowship with you. Look forward to doing it again soon. Well, thank you, Craig. Thanks for being a uh, steady, stable light at KFAX. Um, right here in the Bay Area. We love you guys. We appreciate you. And thanks for the honor of being on. Thanks for the time. There's Pastor Chip Ingram. Again, details on Venture Church. You can get details at venture.cc. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. An interesting new book out that examines America's enemies and our use of love for the underdog that ultimately trashes America and American power is penned by Michael Prell. Michael is a columnist with the Washington Times. You can also read his musings at townhall.com. He served as crisis manager for the 2003 Northeastern Blackout and a strategist for the Tea Party Patriots and is authored now a new book and called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to American power. And uh, Michael, good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for having me here, Craig. I appreciate it. Uh, first, define, if you would, for us the title here. We know what the underdog is. In fact, American, I think largely Americans have always enjoyed rooting for the underdog. Uh, but when you speak of underdogma in your book title, what do you mean by that? Well, you're right. America was founded on an underdog uprising against a more powerful adversary, the British. But underdogma is far different. Underdogma is the widespread and corrosive belief that in any given issue, whichever side has less power, the underdog, is automatically considered righteous simply because they have less power. And whichever side has more power, like America, is automatically considered wrong simply because they have more power. And it doesn't matter which side is actually right or wrong. All that matters to those who practice underdogma is which side has less or more power. And in my book, I show how this underdogma shapes many of the issues that shape our world today. And I answer the question, I ask the question, you know, why is it that some Americans embrace American power and American exceptionalism, while others feel the need to bow down and apologize for it? And then finally, I give readers the tools to fully embrace the idea of American exceptionalism unapologetically, and to beat back and defeat this corrosive belief system that I've called under dogma. 
Let's spend some time analyzing this. You mentioned about the very roots of America that is the triumph of the the underdog over the overdog, in this case, uh, the, the oppressive kingdom of uh, England uh, against the, the colonials here in America. Um, this, of course, is something that I think has kind of set the stage for an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy here in that as we move through then the subsequent growth and expansion of the United States in through the Industrial Revolution and modernization and then eventually, of course, the outcome of the Second World War, uh, America uniquely has always been on the, on the side of being ourselves the overdog, and yet we've always tended to have kind of this soft spot in our hearts for the underdog. Well, because America was founded on that underdog uprising, it's part of the national character. But here's where underdogma is different. Underdogma says that the first Americans were good because they were relatively powerless. But as soon as America became big and successful and powerful, America became bad. So power, power equals bad and weakness equals good. Yeah, I describe it as an axis of power between the power-haves and the power-have-nots. The little guy can do no wrong, even when he does wrong. And the big guy can do no right, even when he does right. And this is where it separates our traditional notions of right and wrong and wipes all that out and says, no, it only tilts on whichever side has less power or more power. Right and wrong objectively don't matter. And this is where moral moral relativism comes from. Boy, not only that, but the sense of entitlement, uh, what we're seeing going on with uh, this 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 sort of the uh, the Robin Hood, you know, shift to taking from the rich and giving to the poor that we're seeing uh, just, you know, blatant throughout government today. Um, this is really a dynamic that goes beyond the, you know, simple power struggles between the United States and other nations. We're even seeing this dynamic at play within American society and certainly with the American politic. So much of the mentality that has crept into the American psyche on this topic is impacting our lives in so many levels. I mean, we've seen going back to Johnson's Great Society, the notion of entitlement creeping in, even the idea that if someone has has uh, come up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, and they've worked hard, they've gotten an education, they've sacrificed, they put in long hours, their family has sacrificed, now as a result of the fruit of their labor and blessings, they have been successful at life. They've been able to enjoy a modicum of success and some wealth. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and now is of the entitlement mentality that because you have and I have not, what you have, you must give to me. Not only have we seen that dynamic play at play here, I think, in underdogma, there's also the notion that we tend to suddenly, as uh, author Michael Perel points out, blame the overdog and immediately cast doubt on on he or she or it, um, even in the face of reality that would demonstrate that it's actually the underdog that's the evil one here. You spend some time in the book on this point, Michael, and I think one of the easiest things that we can demonstrate with this notion is a lot of what we've seen, in, in particularly in mainstream, so-called mainstream and liberal media, post 9-11. Uh, th- this notion that somehow, well, what's taken place here is, you know, people that are victims of Americans' foreign policy and abuse and America standing up for totalitarian regimes like the Shah of Iran for so many years and, and even supporting Saddam Hussein, at least during the time that he was at war with with our enemy Iran, to the point where what happened to uh, over 3,000 people on 9-11 was not the fault of the terrorists. It was really the fault of America. And it sounds crazy, 
until you read their own words. So let me just reset the frame for people. This belief under dogma is a reflexive belief that the little guy is good, not because he's good, but simply because he has less power. And the big guy is bad because he has more power. So in the attacks of 9-11, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to this, and it's just shocking what happened, because when that happened, the whole under dogma equation was turned upside down. America was the underdog. And we clearly saw America's enemies were the enemies. And there was absolute moral clarity for about six hours. And then it started to shift and you saw this underdogma happening. And I take readers through step by step by step. So there's two parts of underdogma. Number one is the big guy must be the bad guy. Did we see that happen after 9-11? Oh yeah. First America was clearly the victim. And then we saw it creeping and creeping and creeping to maybe America brought it on itself. Maybe it was America's foreign policy. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Until it got to the point where high-profile Americans were blaming America for causing this to begin with. And the other side of underdogma is to deify the underdog, no matter what he does. Just because he has less power, he must be good. And if you think it's crazy that they tried it with the terrorists, they did. They went step by step by step. I have direct quotes from mainstream American media calling Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who planned the attacks, quote, thoughtful about his cause and craft and, quote, folksy. And I have five major American media personalities who referred to the 9-11 terrorists as courageous because they had the courage to fly plane loads of innocent people into buildings filled with other innocent people. That shows you the power of under dogma to completely sidestep the rational mind and get people to do these and say these horrible, horrible things. Well, to be sure, I mean, to suggest at any level that Khalid, uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, the, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks is folksy, is like suggesting thing that, I don't know, uh, Joseph Stalin was just kind of a teddy bear. Yeah, you know, it just misunderstood. Water a whole population. It's just bizarre. Where, do, where does this stem from? Because I'm old enough to remember a time in this country, Michael, when it wasn't always like this. I mean, post uh, another major event on U.S. soil, and that was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 41, uh, Americans didn't uh, suddenly rush to say that, well, you know, it must have been that thing about about, about America cutting off Japan's steel supply so they couldn't continue expansion into China and into Korea and the other neighboring countries there in the East. That must have been the thing. It's really our fault. You didn't hear that. What's changed? No, there, was a, there was a tipping point, and I peg the beginning of Under Dogma to the Berkeley student protests of the mid-1960s. Now, why did it happen then? And this was when, so just to, again, reset the frame, this is not people being against bad people for doing bad things. This is people being against those who have power, even if they're virtuous. What they're doing is they're fighting the power. And in Berkeley in the 1960s, that's when the, quote, fight the power movement began. And the reason why it began at that time, and I go into a whole chapter on this, is because that was the first generation that came of age in a country that was a superpower where they didn't have to fight for sustenance and fight to get by like their parents did. They were born literally at the top of the power heap in the world. And ever since 1989, all Americans have been the only ones at the top of the power heap. So this was the first generation, and when they came of age in the 60s, they were given all this power, and suddenly they were looking around, and they started to feel queasy about it, maybe apologetic about it. And that 
kind of thing is a luxury only afforded people who live in relative power and safety. People around the world don't bow down and apologize for power. They want to take it from you. You know, that's the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, while some Americans take exception to American exceptionalism and American power, America's enemies have a far, far different view of power in their own words. Let's take Osama bin Laden at his word. He said their view of power is this. When people see the strong horse and the weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. That's precisely the opposite of under dogma. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Stein. And he writes about America's demographic disadvantage to its enemies. They're having more kids, we're having less. In Under Dogma, I show how those who practice under dogma are putting America at a philosophical disadvantage to its enemies by championing the weak horse and demonizing the strong horse. The consequences of that over time are dire for America. Well, to be sure, particularly since we're no longer using as the yardstick um, things as righteousness and morality and goodness and fairness and fair play, uh, the kind of um, the kind of measuring sticks, the yardsticks that we were taught were measurements of, of virtue and wholesomeness when we were kids. At least I certainly was. Now all of a sudden, uh, we uh, we move to the notion that it's simply based on this one size. Yeah, it almost um, almost then in the end favors the bully, doesn't it? What it does is it shows, it, it shows you the power of this belief system to literally throw out our notions of right and wrong. I mean, we've all heard of moral relativism, but it's not, it's not an accurate term because it's only relative in one direction. You don't see moral relativists automatically, instinctively, taking the side of the powerful. <laughs> it's always on the side of the little guy. They're always excusing the actions and behaviors of the little guy, saying, oh, it's because of this, because of that. No, I mean, some things are just plain wrong. Well, look, for example, uh, uh, one of the things that, is, that has always frustrated me, and we've seen this rear its ugly head once again um, in, in the wake of the recent uh, recession, and that is the idea that we see people that, as uh, well, you know, so-and-so got caught stealing today, and it's because of the high unemployment in the region, and because there's a lack of parity in, in employment opportunities, and so as a result, people steal. Yeah. And I've I, argued, well, let's go back to the last time that America really suffered economically, and that was not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, where we had 25% of the of the working public unemployed, uh, where we had no social network available, there were no uh, safety nets in place, Social Security, unemployment, none of that existed. And yet, very few incidences outside of the outlandish stuff like organized crime that would lead to things like, you know, the, the Ma Barker and uh, John Dillinger, you didn't see average Americans going out to steal just to feed their families. No, they went out, they sold apples and pencils on the street corner, they bartered and traded, they did what they needed to, but we didn't see America become a wholesale group of thieves. And so I would argue that when we look at the thievery, it's not indicative of somebody who's, who's stealing because they're hungry and trying to feed their family, it's indicative of somebody that is living in sin, that's a criminal, and as a result is behaving in a criminal fashion. Absolutely. And those people who, who dismiss it and say, well, they're just stealing because they're poor, they're profoundly insulting all the poor people in the world who don't steal. You know, I grew up poor. I'm pretty sure some people in the listening audience right now did, too. 
and the daily decision you make to be a good person, those who practice under dogma throw all that out the window and say, no, 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 if you're the little guy, you can do whatever you want, and you're good. The little guy can do no wrong even when he does wrong. That's under dogma. Now, this, we're ta- what we're talking about here is, you know, power haves and power have-nots and rich and poor. It's power imbalances. And one way to deal with power imbalances is to, you know, get angry or spiteful or, or turn against those who've achieved success and power and just champion the underdog, the little guy. And what you're doing is you're celebrating his weakness. That's one way to do this, deal with power imbalances. That's under dogma. Michael Farrell, my guest, the book Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Michael Perel, my guest today. You know his writings from townhall.com as well as the Washington Times. He's got a new book out called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Help me understand sometimes perhaps the, the dynamic here. You know, when, when we are the overdog and yet we demonstrate um, a, a propensity toward favoring the underdog, clearly those stakes are at odds. I wonder if some of this goes back to a sense of, of mis- misplaced or confused guilt. I mean, sometimes we see Americans, even when we're the ones who clearly, even to the casual observer, Michael, have been injured, yet we take on a position supporting the underdog almost in a fashion of self-hatred. Why? I'm guilty occasionally of being a member of the reality-based community. So I'm going to stay factual. And there are people out there who feel this guilt. Okay, so I say to them, look... America is the number one power in the world. By definition, there must be one power in the world that is number one. So if you're so guilty and you feel so bad about it being America, fine. What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? I mean, I look at the entire arc of history, and I see clearly, and I'm sure you do too, that this American moment is a miracle of history. It's something to be treasured. We've all heard that phrase, freedom is not free. I would add to that, I would say American exceptionalism is not free. It's something that needs to be earned and fought for every day, and we've seen that so clearly over the past two years. I would say that it's not inherited so much as it's fought for and won every day by Americans, and I say... They've earned it. And maybe that's the point that's, that's un- misunderstood. I think, for example, I started my day today by reading a op-ed piece arguing that we just ought to dispense with all of this. And the writer went on to talk about how the Star-Spangled Banner has so many references to war and, and you know, why should we be talking about war when we're going to enjoy a, a pastime? Of course, ironically, they're talking about this ahead of football, one of the most violent pastimes that we Americans enjoy. And yet I thought to myself as I read this article, article, how absolutely completely disconnected with history is this writer who doesn't understand that he's exercising his First Amendment rights to argue changing the lyrics or dispensing with altogether uh, the national anthem because he's offended by the war overtones, and yet it is the war overtones to which the national anthem refers that shed blood, that bought the very freedom that he enjoys to make such an opinion known publicly in the first place. What irony. And you see the power of this belief system, this underdogma. Do you think for a second that in any of our enemies' countries, there's currently people sitting themselves saying, you know what, um, we probably shouldn't sing that song that has stuff about it, you know, about killing people in it because it might offend uh, someone's sense of it. It just doesn't happen. 
And that's what happens when you have this queasiness about power. And it comes from this natural reaction. It's, it's a gut reaction. It's non-thinking. It bypasses the rational mind. It makes you automatically think that the powerful must be bad and the little guy must be good. And why would you think that? Well, you think that because every time you turn on a television show, a movie, the evening news, or even from the President of the United States, you hear over and over and over that when you achieve wealth and success and powerful, you're bad, you're a fat cat, you need to be demonized. And when you hear this for your whole life and you mix that in with that that shared human experience that we all have of being a small and powerless baby as children, it just all comes together into this love-hate relationship with power that a lot of people who practice under dogma have actually learned how to manipulate inside of you. And I actually show you how that's done. It's quite disturbing, and it goes right to the whole government takeovers. I know we're running out of time, but if you want to know how the government did all those takeovers, let's go through the takeovers. Big health insurance, big banks, big lenders, big insurance, big student lenders, big Wall Street fat cats. What do they have in common? They're all big fat cats. They're all big powers. And the government knows how you react to that. They just put the word big in there. They claim they're going to stand up for you, the little guy. And they use it to take your power away. This is a deep-seated belief system. And I want you to be able to see it clearly so you can rip it out of yourself because they're, they're using it to manipulate you right now. Well, I watched in a news story that I shared with my audience before you joined me tonight uh, concerning the push toward removing the opportunity for, quite frankly, the U.S. taxpayer to pay for abortions through the new health insurance law. And uh, one of the Congress people arguing against it immediately makes the argument that, well, we thought Republicans were in favor of making government smaller. Obviously, this is an attempt for big government because they want to put government back in the bedroom once again. And, of course, it, it's it's the very careful solution of certain words that they know is going to um, elicit a certain response. Yeah. Even though what may be communicated makes a- everything communicated there before and afterwards makes no sense whatsoever. If we pick on certain buzzwords, there it is. Even to going back to the, the example you share in the book, and we talked about this even related to sports a moment ago, the universal dislike that some have for the New York Yankees. And if you drill down as to why do you hate the Yankees so much, I think the honest person would simply answer, that's because they win so much. And they typically always beat my team. Therefore, I'm in favor of any team that's fighting or, or, or going up against the Yankees. I'm so happy you brought this up because I'd love that we close with this because how do you satisfy those who practice under dogma, right? The only way to satisfy them is to stop being powerful. America's tried everything else. Foreign aid, liberated Europe, fund the United Nations, the most charitable nation in world history. Every time there's a disaster anywhere in the world, American helicopters are there on site saving people's lives. And by the way, you don't have helicopters if you don't have power. And the only way to satisfy under dogmatists is to stop being number one, just like Yankees with the Yankee derangement syndrome. The only way to satisfy the Yankee haters is for the Yankees to lose. And I don't want America to lose. And that's what I show people in this book. You can actually actually embrace American power and exceptionalism because you've earned it. Good point and an excellent one to end on. Uh, it's a compelling book, Michael. We appreciate taking some time out of your schedule to share your insights and the hard work that went into this. Uh, by the way, of course, um, I mentioned that uh, Michael is also a columnist for uh, townhall.com, which is a, a sister property of uh, this Salem radio station. Point you in that direction to read his insights and musings. The book, again, called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And the book available through Amazon.com and also information on the web at under-dogma.com. That's under 
dogma.com. And our thanks again to Michael Perel for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com salemnow.com